0: podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash-like morons and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're You should always do your own homework and let us know when we
1: Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello. Hi, Stuart. Hi, how you doing? I'm I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Uh, Paul Williams, are you with us? I am with you. All right, Paul. Wanna, wanna, I think it's time for you to tell the audience what we do on this show.
2: Oh, happy to, as always. Dr. Fuato. Uh we are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Uh, we also tend to talk to our guests about what they do to decompress and, and sort of maximize their work-life fit. At the outset, so, um, and this is the part where I shame you if you don't listen to it. So just just assume that you've been shamed if you're not paying attention to that part. Um, I am thus shamed. Thank you. But you can always refer to the show notes for timestamps if you want to move past and get right to the meat of the show.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah, the show notes are actually amazing, by the way.
1: Uh, yeah, these, these show notes, make sure you look at the show notes. I, I guess I, this is probably a good time to say, in general, I feel like... Uh you might think that you learn well by just listening but I I think you will learn better if you read the show notes as well or at least refer back to them at some point because uh you got to have multi-modality learning and uh space it out a little bit so uh but enough about that Stuart why did we want to do this show
0: I, Yeah Matt I'm not sure how long ago it was that, that you and I were talking about aspirin I think it was this has got to be like 3 or 4 or 5 years ago we're talking about the the utility of basically refilling aspirin we we're sitting in our office and like re just hitting refill and aspirin saying is this really necessary um I re- look I, at some yeah. of the trials
1: i remember yeah, but, there was a morning report where like we had like the the interns and residents like listed everything they could think of for aspirin and we like went through all these cases like what we thought yeah. you should do continue aspirin stop aspirin <laughs> yeah. and, we had no clue yeah I think now we're probably better to, qualified to answer it than we were when we did that in Morning Report.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a pretty funny one. But but it kind of came down to the fact that when we looked at the original uh, literature, it, it really wasn't that compelling when you're looking at uh, what medications that, that they're on, the prevalence of smoking, and just a lot of confounding factors. And I pretty much said, eh, you know, I'm not too convinced that aspirin's a great medication. And then there was a Japanese trial that came out around 2015, 2016, essentially said the same thing. I said, well... Man, I'm, I'm kind of convinced that this is, this is probably going the, the side of the, the, to the wayside. And uh, recently we had a couple of new articles that came out that's really, at least to me, says we probably shouldn't be using it. And so we kind of went from there and said, let's go ahead and invite someone on that can give us some perspective. I think we really got some good perspective this time.
1: So our guest is Dr. Ambrish Pandi. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine in the Division of Cardiology at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. His area of focus is preventive cardiology with a research focus in prediction and pre- prevention of heart failure risk. He went to medical school at the All India Institute of Medical Sciences in New Delhi, India, followed by a residency and fellowship training at UT Southwestern. Even early in his career, he has been the recipient of many research awards from the American Heart Association and has over 100 research publications in peer-reviewed journals. So I am very happy to bring you this discussion with Dr. Ambrish Pandi. Ambree, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And the first question I'm going to ask you is, can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself and be sure to include something that you do outside the world of medicine?
3: Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to join you guys on this podcast and thank you for the opportunity to talk about this important topic. I'm a cardiologist at UT Southwestern Dallas, Texas. I've uh, done my training, most of my training here. I did my medical school in India. My most uh, interesting part of my life right now is my four year old daughter that I'm raising with my wife, who's also a physician at the children's hospital. So I mostly follow her clues and, and uh, advices and then do as told, just <laughs> like a obedient resident would do. So I would say that takes a bunch of my time outside work. And uh, other than that, I haven't uh, done much recently in terms of hobbies, I would say, but I recently came back from a fascinating trip to American Heart Association, which had some exciting stuff. So we can, uh, I'm sure some of which will feature on your podcast in future. So yeah, excited about that.
1: I feel like the AHA meeting every year just like has like these just great headlines. It's the heart, it turns out the heart is an exciting organ.
3: <laughs> it is, it is a exciting and a pulsating organ. And I, I feel like AHA decides their headlines first and then find studies to fit those headlines because their <laughs> headlines are always so catchy and attractive.
2: Yeah, it looks huge too. Like every picture, there always seems to be a laser show in the background. Like it just looks gigantic compared to most conferences. Yeah, uh,
3: it looks like a rock star show if you go to the (laughs) late breaking sessions because they have this laser show with a EKG running on the background on a three dimensional, uh, like a a three dimensional uh, stage. It's pretty. It's pretty amazing (laughs) what they do. But uh, the science is also pretty interesting, and I, I would say. Uh despite all these light shows, the science probably gets the most attention there.
2: One would hell. So Tupac comes out and gives the new lipid recommendations.
1: <laughs>
3: yeah. Oh,
2: gosh. Well,
3: uh, none of this is funded by the industry.
0: <laughs> Paul, did you have a question?
2: Sure. Um, I'll ask, what is uh, the last book that you read for pleasure? And did you actually enjoy it?
3: <laughs> so actually, you you might find this funny, but I've been I was gifted this collection of Kelvin and Hobbs the uh, oh, the great. hard hardcover series. Uh, my wife gifted it for my birthday, and I've been reading it because it's like four or five volumes, and it's so fascinating. The conversation between a six year old boy and his imaginary tiger is so relevant even in this day and age. And I think this was written early '90s and late '80s, and it's it's the genius of the writer that uh, the conversations are so relevant in the current climate and actually i find it still very amusing and 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 very full of perspective so that that's what i've been doing in my free time and i have a four-year-old daughter so i talk to her as if i'm talking to kelvin i guess
2: (laughs) (laughs) nice that's a tremendous answer great what
0: what is your most memorable failure what did you learn from it
3: my most memorable failure—that's a tough one. I was—I've have, I have had so many that I guess that's a tough one to to uh, to pick one. I would say uh, I was working on a research collaboration with a really famous and well accomplished researcher, but not the best collaborator. And somehow the project didn't go move forward, and uh, I tried my best to salvage it, and somehow the person was either due to lack of interest or other priorities i guess the project never worked out and i learned from that that it's not just the name or the or the stature of the person you're working with or the brilliance of the person but it's also the 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 one-on-one connection and the and the fact that you can work as a team is so much more important for success and i think since then i've always tried to work with people who i find would be a good fit and i would want to work with as a team rather than person who is the most talented or the most A brilliant guy on the on the scene for that Mm -hmm. research project I guess so that that was I think that helped me a lot in shaping up my future uh, work and also uh, deciding who to work with who not to work with
1: I wanted to ask a follow-up question there how how do you gauge who's going to be good to work with uh, when you're kind of when you're trying to find a lab or when you're trying to find your first job I, I imagine there's some of our listeners might be going through the same thing
3: yeah, that is that's a great question and a lot of it is uh, basically you get uh, feedback from people who you know who they uh, know or uh, who might know them and then you also look at their recent works and you try to find uh, people who are uh, not just publishing well but also working with like uh, trainees and have first author papers on uh, have papers on which first authors are trainees and not like the senior person himself i think that's a good marker if i see a, a, a Guy who's publishing all the first other papers when he's very well accomplished. and it it just gives me a little bit of uh, doubt that, that does he not uh, does he or she not work well with the trainees? or so usually I look for people who are who have a group of uh, authors or collaborators that are from different uh, institutions and have trainees on the on their author's list. I think that's the key point. And then when when you email them or you meet them, you talk to them, you can actually gauge how. Interested in how knowledgeable they are uh, about the, and then it just builds on that. And I often, it's a hit and trial uh, thing. You try to figure it out based on their response, how soon they respond to your emails, and there are a lot of factors going. There's no predictive modeling here, but just (laughs) more like experience. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, those are great answers. I I think. That's the advice. Yeah, that's. um, I might probably for a similar reason, one of my, my earliest research experience when I tried and uh, I've been somewhat averse to trying research is probably because I got paired with somebody where it was just not a good fit. I was not a priority and I just felt like I was just kind of wallowing by myself trying to get this project done and uh, it gave me a bad taste for research early on. But uh, yeah. maybe in the future, I'll get back into it.
3: Yeah, such experiences are very important because early on, if you have a bad experience, that might make the whole, uh, uh, like the the whole field sour for you because you may not want to try it again. Mm. And I think that's why it's really, really important when you pick your mentors or collaborators early on to work with people that are most collaborative. May not be the biggest names in the field, but at least the people that would give the most attention to you and your work.
1: All right. Well, we have a big topic tonight, so I I do want to get on, and I believe Stuart has the first case for us here from from the prestigious cash Lack memorial hospital
0: that's right i've got archie andrews so archie andrews is a rambunctious 72 year old gentleman he's got morbid obesity with a bmi greater than 35 hypertension hyperlipidemia type 2 diabetes and he's currently on Metformin and Januvia. I'm sorry, and he's currently on Metformin and Citagliptin. He presents for routine follow-up. In addition to his prescription medications, he has decided to take aspirin, 81 milligrams daily, but recently heard that this might do more harm than good. So what, first of all, what kind of follow-up information would be important to gather about Mr. Andrews to answer this question?
3: I guess this is a not-so-uncommon phenotype for a patient that you could see in your primary care clinic or even a cardiology prevention clinic, a patient with diabetes and all the usual risk factors coming to you, taking aspirin and having questions about primary uh, prevention aspirin. So I think the most important question that uh, I would ask this if I had to see, if I were seeing this patient in my clinic was has he ever, has he ever had a history of heart attack or stroke or any major adverse cardiovascular event? And that decides that's the key decision point for determining whether or not to continue aspirin for primary prevention or secondary prevention. I would like to remind that secondary prevention is meant for preventing an event and not stable disease. So if you had history of coronary artery calcium seen on a, on a CAC scan or a CT scan of the chest, that doesn't amount towards secondary prevention. That's still primary prevention with known atherosclerotic disease. But if he had a major adverse cardiovascular event in the past, then I think that's the key information to obtain. And then I would do the usual risk assessment based on Framingham risk equation, or you can use the new pool cohort equation to determine the risk, and the risk category of 10% or higher is, I think, is relevant here as well. So let's
0: say, um, so he hasn't had an event, so we're looking at more primary prevention, how How good is what we call baby aspirin for primary prevention
3: That's a great question and has been a topic of a lot of debate among a lot of uh the people in the field and i think I think the data as well as the the consensus has evolved and i, I don't know if there is a consensus right now, but I think the overall thinking about primary prevention aspirin has evolved over the past twenty thirty years and it all started in the I think early nineties or uh, when the, one of the first studies was a physician's health study uh, and then uh, the women's health study, those were the two seminal studies that were done, which showed actually a beneficial effect of aspirin in patients who did not have known cardiovascular disease or known events in the past. And the, most of the benefit was uh, related to reducing the risk of repeat MI or uh, recurrent uh, adverse cardiovascular event in the form of MI, but not as much for mortality. And there were similar multiple trials done over the 90s and then early 2000s, and even now some of them have come out. But uh, based on the experiences in the past, USPSTF, which is a US Preventive Services Task Force, actually recommended using aspirin for for patients who have a Framingham risk score of 10% or higher, which is basically a 10-year event rate risk of 10% and who were in the age range of 50 to 60 years, because beyond 60, the competing risk of other, uh, uh, like dying from something else, is high enough or risk of bleeding is high enough. So the risk benefit was never considered favorable or was considered less favorable, I guess I should say. But overall, uh, the benefits have been looked in large-scale meta-analyses of these studies. And I would say that most recent guidelines from USPST have recommended using uh, aspirin for primary prevention based on the strong evidence for reducing risk of mi which is around like 20% risk reduction and some risk of uh, reducing some risk of death which is like less than 5% around 5% so that is the exist that is the current recommendation or the existing paradigm but that has been challenged recently with a mm-hmm. lot of studies which we can talk about
1: And yeah, I wanted to break in here and just kind of point out, I I feel like aspirin has just been marketed just amazingly to the public and like (laughs) people think it's this panacea where just like, you know, take aspirin. That's part of a healthy lifestyle. If you're an older or middle-aged adult, uh, I've, I've had people say that to me. Yeah. I exercise. I take an aspirin every day and I, I think what's interesting and one of the editorials uh, that came out in the New England journal along with a lot of these studies they were just talking about how if if you look at the physician's health study and the women's uh, health mm-hmm. study that you mentioned that the the risk factors and the c- control of other risk factors was a lot different now than it was then right. so I think you know it's just but this marketing of aspirin it's it's just so hard to convince people and even some trainees or just other uh, practitioners that it's not, you know, as beneficial for every single patient.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you just look at the number needed to treat calculation for aspirin to prevent the first heart attack, it's approaching 2,000 per year to prevent one heart attack versus the the bleeding risk seems to, um, there, there seems to be a balance there that the bleeding risk for some patients is, is actually outweighs the benefit for it. And it's difficult to really look at uh, from a population's health standpoint who would benefit and who would have... Excess risk, actually.
3: Right. I think uh, that's a great point. And I think uh, we have to realize that how we manage cardiovascular risk has evolved a lot right. in the last 20 years. And the phenotype that we see in our uh, clinics now of patients who are at risk is very different from what was seen when women's health study or uh, physician's health study was done. Yeah. And Aspen was the answer to the primary prevention question back in the day. But statins have uh, taken over that role. Uh, in a large manner and now overall you see the re- event rates have gone down a lot like you know, the event rates are nowhere near what you what they saw in the 80s and 90s for primary prevention population and as the event rate goes down even though there is a relative benefit the absolute r- risk reduction is low which drives the number needed to treat so i think and uh, that has been uh, kind of the uh, one of the reasons why the recent trials have not favored aspirin is because one, their event rates were low, but the bleeding events are not changing. The bleeding risk is still the same, so the mm-hmm. bleeding is proportionately higher in the absolute uh, for absolute numbers compared to how the uh, CV events are. And I would say uh, one thing: nowadays, what when I feel like I need to start someone on aspirin for prevention, I start them on a the statin because statins has much better data, there's much more evidence, and it just uh, doesn't have any bleeding risk or anything. So I would say in one line, if you're considering starting aspirin for primary prevention, stop there and just start a statin, <laughs> if it's not on it. That's so super interesting,
2: because I don't know how everybody else's experience is, but like my patients, not generally, not to paint with too broad a brush, but many of my patients express concerns about the adverse effects with statin yeah, therapy. Exactly. And getting them started on it, takes a whole lot of work, but they will buy like a four-gallon bin of aspirin at Costco for $3 and Take that happily, and I feel like the risks of something bad happening with aspirin are probably actually a little bit higher. So yeah, it's just, it's a just a lot taking a it for, for pain.
3: Day. A lot higher, and and I would say that statin has been uh, subject to a lot of negative publicity regarding yeah. myalgias and uh, other muscle aches and stuff. And these are things that are common in older age, anyways. And then people have read it or heard it somewhere, and they have myalgia that may be completely unrelated. And they just attribute it to statin because someone said so, or someone uh, said so on a fancy commercial or or somewhere they read it. And there have been studies, actually, which have looked at the nocebo effect, yeah. where you start a statin, then switch it, and then started back on. And you see that the, most of the myalgies are completely explained by the nocebo effect and not necessarily related to the drug itself. So I would say I feel pretty comfortable in uh, uh, prescribing statins and talking patients about the risk, uh, about, uh, potential uh, side effects that may experience. And I usually tell them that if you keep exercising, those side effects may go away. And the patients, that, that's like a two-in-one uh, hit right. because that increases them to exercise. And then that also incentivizes them to walk as a way to keep taking statin. So I, I feel like that has helped me somewhat. And other than that, for aspirin, I think the bleeding risk is is. Really significant, especially in the higher uh, age categories, and so uh, especially when you're. And if you look at the cardiovascular risk population, it's getting older and older. Right. So now, uh, back in 90s or 80s, it was the 80s, uh, 50 or 60 year old guy who had all these risk factors, was smoking, and and had these. And now that same age profile has moved. I think 10 years forward, and now it's a 70 year old guy that you would be more concerned and seeing in your clinic for primary prevention purposes. So as this population ages. The risk of bleeding is going up, so my uh, I'm more hesitant to just do aspirin, especially for primary prevention only.
0: Yeah, and even in the Physicians' Health Study, um, I, I was trying to pull up the results, but uh, I, I believe even the smoking prevalence was higher in the Physicians' Health Study than it currently is for the general population.
3: Oh yeah, because physicians used to smoke a lot in the yeah, age. it was like twenty five
0: percent or so. Advertisements
3: of Camel brand and all that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it,
0: it's almost like aspirin's the panacea for smoking.
3: Yeah, Uh, and then they justified smoking. Yeah. 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 So I think overall smoking has uh, uh, generally gone down in the the past uh, decade or so. And that, along with statins, are the two main reasons why the uh, incidence of cardiovascular events has gone down over time. And heart failure has gone up because now people are living long enough to get heart failure after having MIs or or even otherwise. So Mm -hmm. that is the one main reason why. You see lower event rates in these primary prevention cohorts is because they don't smoke as much and their risk factors are well better, way better managed now.
1: So, Ambrish, we so there are these three trials that I I do want to just briefly touch on, but I I don't want to get too deep into the numbers because it's going to be hard for the audience to follow that, and they can right, look right. the studies up themselves. But mm-hmm. so there was a send, arrive, and a spree. And maybe you could briefly talk us through, like, the big picture points about they were really looking at. As, as, certainly, ascend and arrive were looking at major adverse cardiac events and bleeding. And they were looking at uh, ascend was looking at patients with diabetes, and arrive was looking at patients without diabetes. So, what did they kind of what did they find? And then we can go and talk about Aspire, which was the one with older adults.
3: These are the three trials that have recently come out and have created a lot of uh, excitement in the area because they have been. The results have been kind of interesting and uh, uh, have gone against the general recommendation and the perception about the beneficial effects of aspirin in primary prevention. So I'll start with ARRIVE, which was a trial of aspirin to reduce risk of adverse cardiovascular events in patients who were at moderate risk for for the uh, for uh, for cardiovascular events. So and they define moderate risk, I think, using the Framingham or the existing risk equations which was around like i think 20 to 30% risk or uh, higher than 20% i should say and what they saw was that there was uh, this was a 5 year follow up trial with 12000 patients and what they see- saw was that first of all overall the event rate were event rates were much much lower than what they anticipated when they were powering their study and then the event rate was around like 4 to 5% when they were uh, expecting a much higher event rate based on their risk of 20 to 30 percent, that was this patient population. So imagine that uh, when you use Framingham risk equation, if someone told you the event rate was 5 percent in five years, this is a low risk population, uh, truly, when this was anticipated to be a high risk population based on risk prediction. And uh, in their study, I think they did not see a significant difference in their uh, risk of having an adverse event between the two, intervention and placebo arm so which means that basically aspirin was not associated with any significant reduction in risk of major adverse cardiovascular event in contrast i think as you would have expected there was a twofold higher risk of bleeding that was uh, seen with aspirin without uh, compared to those that were not on aspirin so overall this was a fairly negative trial from primary outcome standpoint and there was a risk of uh, uh, harm in terms of bleeding that you saw uh, in this moderate risk patient population so that was arrived, which was a uh, pretty much a null study for uh, in for aspirin. And then the trial was uh, looking at a different kind of risk patient population. This was not basically driven by the risk predicted uh, risk, but by their status of diabetes. So in general, diabetes patient population is considered to be high risk. So this study included patients who were uh, with known diabetes and they were randomized to aspirin versus placebo. The outcome was, Similar, basically looking at uh, MACE, which is major adverse cardiovascular events. And again, they had 15,000 patients and seven eight years follow up, which gives you a lot of numbers. And here the event rates were higher than arrive. So remember, arrive was around 4 to 5 percent, event rate here, the event rates were eight to 9 percent. And that just tells you how diabetes actually is a major risk factor for events, it's almost twice. And with this relatively higher risk patient population, they did see a significant reduction in risk of major adverse cardiovascular events with aspirin. So participants who were in the aspirin arm had a 12% lower risk of having stroke, uh, CV death, or MI, as compared to those who were in the placebo arm. However, this also came at a cost, and this cost was in form of bleeding, and the bleeding was significantly higher in the aspirin arm, uh, like 29% higher risk of bleeding in the aspirin arm compared to the placebo arm. So, again, so this while this trial did show a modest benefit in reducing cardiovascular event rates, 12% would be considered modest at best. This is relative risk reduction, and uh, absolute risk reduction was, I think, uh, 1.1%. So, the number needed to treat is going to be very high. So, and this was counterbalanced by largely the high risk of bleeding.
0: So, sorry, I just want to Put, put this in perspective, never needed to treat. So that was 1.1% over nine years. If you extrapolate that to a, an annual number needed to treat to prevent one event for diabetic patients, it come, comes out to 800, uh, between 800 and 850 patients to prevent one event.
1: Another thing when I, some of the editorials that I was reading to prepare for this, they they do point out too, because we're we're, we're talking about a composite endpoint of major adverse cardiac events and and non-fatal MI, you have to look how they define that probably in like the supplemental material, right? Because we have these more sensitive troponins now.
3: And that becomes an issue in any, generally any therapy that does not modify risk of mortality but gives you a benefit in major adverse cardiovascular event. You got to be careful, one, to look for what they are including in major adverse cardiovascular, cardiovascular events, because you'll see a lot of PCI trials will include uh, recurrent revascularization or hospitalization for angina, and these are all. I would I wouldn't say gameable, but I would say these are all like subject to. Uh, physician discretion, right? And if someone had a recent PCI and comes in with chest pain, they're more like we all have seen this, they all always get admitted for any kind of chest pain because the ER physician feels uncomfortable if they had already had a recent PCI. This is this theoretical risk of thrombosis that is always there. So I think that has to be paid attention to. But even for absolutely important clinical events like MI, you got to pay attention to whether how they exclude the type 2 MIs, which are basically troponin leaks in the setting of cardiovascular stress from any other reason. And so those things become important. But I would say that the wealth of literature on aspen has never suggested any substantial change in death. So I would never expect aspen to modify risk of death even when it was approved and in physician health study and wise, the most of the benefit was in like 20% reduction in MI risk. So in general, I think I believe it that aspen reduced risk of MI. Biologically, it makes sense. But now that the absolute event rates are so low and statins are providing so much more risk reduction that uh, aspirin is just not the best uh, drug to go for for primary prevention.
1: Briefly, there was one other uh, trial recently, the ESPRI trial, which was done in older adults. And we can touch on that. Then we have a whole bunch of cases that we want to go through of common clinical scenarios that we see in internal medicine where... I think people. Well, I certainly I've been confused about whether or not I should continue aspirin or uh, continue anticoagulation. So we'll get to those. But let's talk about uh, briefly what did the Esprit trial show, and does that change our? Should that be changing our practice at all?
3: Right. So Esprit was the latest of the three trials that came out, I believe, and it was. Uh, uh, it was a trial again of aspirin for primary prevention uh, indication, but this was done in older patient population, and this was like participants who were older than 70 years. So remind, I would like to remind you that even USPSTF doesn't recommend uh, strongly for using aspirin in this patient population as such. And aspirin was uh, designed for more than one uh, endpoint. It was designed to look at one was uh, CV events, but I think the primary focus of the paper was also on disability-free survival, which is considered to be a more meaningful clinical outcome in the elderly population. So it's not just a, a heart, heart attack or the stroke, but also how, how good your quality of life is and how active you are and things like that. So this was an interesting study. This was designed with 20,000 patients and uh, mean age was like 75, so substantially older people and a lot of, uh, I think a five-year follow-up. So very well done study, good amount of data if you look at the cardiovascular event endpoint, there was no significant difference in the risk of adverse cardiovascular events between the two uh, arms. However, there was a high risk of bleeding that would be expected. So again, the notion that aspirin reduces MACE events was not confirmed in this uh, setting. But on the contrary, when they looked at the all-cause mortality analysis, which was a separate paper in the same New England edition, they saw that aspirin was actually associated with a signal for harm such that participants who were randomized to the aspirin arm had a 14% higher risk of all-cause death as compared to the placebo arm, and these deaths were related to the cancer-related deaths. So the risk of cancer-related deaths was 31% higher. So it is interesting because in the past, there's been this notion that aspirin prevents colon cancer, and aspirin has a protective effect against colon cancer and is actually recommended by USPSTF colon cancer prevention as well so this just puts you in puts this whole uh uh, notion in perspective that aspirin can have beneficial effects outside the heart which was clearly not seen in this patient population in asprey
1: yeah this i I find this kind of thing confusing because it's it's sort of like you know aspirin um yeah, they're, they in some, in some studies are saying maybe aspirin is lowering cancer risk. And then this, this comes out and, you know, maybe it's a population thing and maybe there's very specific populations where aspirin's, aspirin's useful for cancer prevention. And maybe there's other populations where it's not, but it just, uh, I guess it's why you have to be careful (laughs) when you're... It is,
3: it is. But also, I think there's a significant interaction here by time. Back in the day when people were having colon cancer and not getting screened regularly, now there's guideline recommendations to screen for colon cancer and any protective effect that there may have been of aspirin or maybe aspirin made you bleed in your GI tract and you went to the doctor and you got screen. You got a colonoscopy. Yeah,
0: that's what so, I've always said.
3: <laughs> colon cancer was detected. So there's a lot of issues that may have been at play And back in 80s and 90s when all these signals for cancer prevention were seen with aspirin. I never honestly believed it because the bi- biology behind it never really made complete sense. And I think now when, when colon cancer screening is so uh, much in practice and people are getting detected at early stage, you pretty much took out that... Uh, sentinel uh, uh, benefit of taking aspirin so it can cause some minor bleeding and lead to further workup that can diagnose cancer. Uh, I think this just suggests that overall, aspirin definitely doesn't have any outside-the-heart benefits. There may be some benefit in uh, for MI prevention that has been pretty much attenuated by concurrent use of statin in the contemporary patient population.
1: So that's, that's the three trials, uh, the three recent big trials, and we talked about the the other weight-based trial on a on a previous show. Uh, so Paul, why don't you bring us on uh, let's let's talk about another case of aspirin use.
2: Yeah, and we'll still we'll leave it on Archie, who don't forget the key component here is that he's rambunctious but also 72 years old and diabetic and so forth and so on. Yeah. So Best let's, friends let's, with Calvin. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. So let's 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 suppose for a second that Archie coughed once, which means he got a CT scan of the chest. Um, and then a CT scan just sort of incidentally showed moderate atherosclerosis and he's never complained of any anginal symptoms. He's never had an acute coronary syndrome, which is, this just showed up on imaging and now you're kind of stuck dealing with it. I feel like we see this kind of thing all the time for this particular scenario. Would would you consider using aspirin? And if so, or even if not, would this be primary prevention, secondary prevention? What happens when you have these findings that, um, don't actually go along with a major adverse cardiac event?
3: Uh, uh, that's a great question. I think I was no uh, looking at the case description and I noticed that Archie's not on a statin. So oh, I would start <laughs> arching on a statin based on all these findings sure. and hold, hold off on the aspirin. But I would say when you do a CT of chest and you find moderate atherosclerosis in a 72 year old with all these risk factors, it's not surprising at all. And right. it is still primary prevention because uh, Archie did not have any history of major risk cardiovascular events in the past. And it, uh, the finding of calcium in the coronaries or calcium in the aorta does put you at a higher risk. This is a very well established risk factor, or, or actually equivalent for coronary artery disease. So I would say this qualifies him as a stable CAD. And I would say this patient probably has stable CAD and non obstructive or obstructive, you wouldn't know till we do a CAT, but he would still. Uh, I, I think that generally most uh, people would feel a little more compelled to put them on an aspirin based on their CT findings or based on their findings of calcium. But uh, I would say that this is the same thing as calling it a high-risk primary prevention, because all this calcium does is put you in a high-risk category or a risk-enhancing factor if you want to go with the current lingo. <laughs> <laughs> I do not. I do not. We discuss
2: it.
3: So, But I would definitely put, uh, uh, put Archie on statin, for sure. And you could use the CAC uh, MESA calculator, but I would remind you that that is meant for st- statin uh, eligibility uh, prediction rather than aspirin.
2: And I want to circle back. So it's so we're still kind of solidly in primary prevention land. Are there any other patient <laughs> categories that would qualify for primary prevention for aspirin, like if they were appropriately statinized? Is there anyone else that you would just sort of add aspirin empirically to the regimen to, and how do you make that determination?
3: I think with the current uh, uh, data coming out from all these trials and with everything else that uh, I would not put someone for primary prevention on stat- on aspirin because I would make sure they are on a good statin dose and they manage their risk factors and aggressive risk factor modification, making sure if they have CAD, then I would, uh, uh, if they have CAD based on stable disease, then I would consider rather putting them on better diabetes medications, which are SGLT2 inhibitors now and the dapagliflozin, the impagliflozin and those things rather than I think we have to realize that with aspirin you only treat a narrow spectrum of risk and the risk is uh, spread out uh, with LDL the, rest of the risk is spread out across your uh, hyperlipidemia, hypertension diabetes and I think modifying those risk factors would probably help a lot more than just focusing on aspirin which uh, has been shown in all these recent studies to not actually do much
1: so this patient, we're saying they have stable CAD or non, you know, asymptomatic CAD. Purely, we're seeing this by imaging, and they've never had a vascular event. I, I just wanted to clarify as far as secondary prevention. Um, would you do you lump in anyone who's had a PCI, whether it's like a peripheral vascular or a or a cardiac stent? Would you you lump them in as under secondary, secondary prevention?
3: prevention? Yeah, secondary right. prevention. Those are technically those are secondary preventions because if you look at uh, the like inclusion criteria from the seminal trials; those patients were always included in the secondary patient, pop- secondary prevention trials. But incidental finding of calcium was never. Well, and this is a new thing. The calcium scoring and all that are new right. things too. So those were never looked at as uh, markers of prime uh, of secondary prevention population in the past. So if you have had a revascularization, PCI, bypass, PAD stenting, those are probably secondary prevention because they have had clinical events associated with whatever disease they have. And if you are just uh, getting a PE rule out scan for coughing and you got a calcium, that is still a primary prevention uh, in for most people who are looking at risk prediction.
1: So these people benefit from statins, definitely uh, t- talk to them about their other risk factors, high blood pressure, smoking, control, control everything else, okay. Let's move on to another part of the case, our same patient, Archie, still rambunctious, uh, still with <laughs> diabetes and obesity. Let's say Archie's now on aspirin and clopidogrel, uh, also known as uh, dual antiplatelet therapy in the cardiology lingo. And uh, it's been about six months since he had a, a PCI, like a, he had a stent placed. So, and this was a, a drug eluting stent to his LAD and this was done for chronic stable angina he actually didn't have a myocardial infarction so he had this stent done now after 6 months he can presumably or 12 months he can presumably go to just aspirin monotherapy and mm-hmm. would you consider would you continue him on aspirin for the rest of his life now that he has a stent
3: yes yes so as as we were talking earlier once you have a stent for angina so it becomes clinically relevant uh, secondary prevention now so there's enough evidence to make us continue aspirin for secondary prevention for lifelong and unless he has any bleeding or any uh, other uh, event that would push me away from aspirin in terms of side effects i would continue on aspirin for life stop i would stop the clopidogrel or any other dapt uh, medication a pty 12 inhibitor at 6 months in this uh, scenario for stable cad pci and usually for the second part of the question was how long do you keep DAPT on. And I think it depends upon why they got the stent. If it's a ACS event, then I try to do one year. And then there's uh, the new paradigm has been towards calculating a DAPT score, which is based on a uh, DAPT trial that was done a few years ago. And the DAPT score informs you about the risk of uh, adverse events on follow-up in such patients. And if the DAP score is two or higher, and it is dependent upon the stent size and the uh, clinical setting in which the stent was done, diabetes, smoking, and th- other risk factors, if the DAP score is high and they have no bleeding stigmata at the end of one year, then I continue them for 30 months. But if the DAP score is low, and I just stop it at uh, 12 months or one year for ACS event indication and six months for stable angina.
1: And DAPT for the audience, dual antiplatelet therapy. We sort of said it before. So this is this is a relatively newer thing. I mean in the past everyone was being on dual being put on dual antiplatelet for 12 months. So 12 it's newer months. now if they have just if it's more more, nuanced, yeah. a softer indication for the stent uh without an actual event then you can you can stop at 6 months.
3: Right. I guess that's how the guideline writers keep their jobs is by making it more <laughs> complicated and variable and making it all sound difficult than it actually is.
1: I wanted to ask my colleagues Paul Paul uh, or Stuart, have it, either of you guys been using a DAP score?
0: I have not.
2: No, I have not. Okay.
0: My DAP score is consult cardiology.
1: So Stuart, you brought up the DAP score. What what yeah. goes into it here?
0: So it looks like, so diabetes, prior MI, hypertension, PAD, cigarette smoking within the last two years, history of CHF or LVH less than, or sorry, LVEF less than 30%, renal insufficiency defined as creatinine greater than two milligrams per deciliter, uh, or dialysis dependent and then whether or not they have an mi presentation stent diameter less than three millimeters or stenting of vein or graft
1: okay so, so. i guess the hard one there for an internist uh maybe the stent diameter, the stent yeah. diameter. maybe if the patient yeah. has it on like their pocket card they th-
3: yeah they usually you can tell or you can just select the higher end and then see if and the lower end and see if it makes a difference
1: Well, Stuart, why don't you take us to the next part of our case? Archie, it seems like things keep evolving for Archie.
2: Actually, before we get there, do you mind if I ask, just just for the people in the back, and just as a refresher, for secondary prevention, could you just remind me of the actual aspirin dosing? Because I feel, particularly with AD, but just in general, I just feel like it's all over the place. So just 81, 81. always and forever.
3: Constant 81 from cardiology standpoint. Unless the only area I see 325 used is post-cabbage for like Mm. six months or something for uh, graft patency. But other than that, for most indications, it's 81. Well,
0: why did all these new trials use 100 milligrams? That's one thing we because didn't I touch on. Because I
3: think in Europe, it's different. And if you look at the trials where they were, design, they were yeah. designing, I think Europe is more 100 or 162. I it in like India, one... it's 162 and 102. So the formulations vary. But there have been studies on dose dependence in, in the past and the dose response metan. The benefit for cardiovascular prevention is same across all doses of aspirin. So okay. 81 is as good as 325 for cardiovascular disease, but the bleeding risk goes up with each increment in the dose. So use the lowest dose available. That's all Perfect. Thank saying. you.
2: I just want to hear that in front of God and everyone. Thank you for saying <laughs> out loud.
1: Okay. <laughs> so... So, Stuart, why don't you read us the next part of this? Yeah.
0: So, so it's five years later, and Mr. Andrews is, is still taking his aspirin 81 milligrams daily, but now gets admitted for new-onset AFib with rapid ventricular response, and has started on a factor ten a inhibitor. My favorite, apixaban. I'm sorry, rivaroxaban, my less favorite. So, <laughs> should Archie continue to take aspirin in addition to the direct oral anticoagulant?
3: So he's only on one antiplatelet and rivaroxaban. Is that the?
0: That's second? right. Yeah. With
3: That's PCI? right.
1: Yeah. He had the PCI, but he was uh, he was appropriately changed after six months to aspirin uh, aspirin therapy monotherapy. So now now he has the indication to go on a, a, a doac. So would you continue? Would you continue the aspirin with the doac?
3: All right. So I'm going to pull up this study. This was called. Compass the compass trial i don't know if you yeah. guys remember that yeah. it came out We're, and did a lot of buzz
0: Yeah we, we talked about that one briefly
3: You did okay so yeah. so compass was basically rivaroxaban with or without aspirin and stable cad There
0: was and, a weird dosage of rivaroxaban Yeah though.
3: there was like 2.5 plus aspirin that had the best benefit and aspirin uh, 5 was not any different from others So basically the question that is in this case has never been exactly studied but they have been trials that elude to similar combinations or similar uh, scenarios. But I would say, if you're treating someone with new onset for uh, with uh, rivaroxaban 20, I would feel comfortable dropping aspirin five years out of his tent and just put him on rivaroxaban for a long term because the risk of, if you look at the risk benefit, uh, the risk of bleeding when you combine an antiplatelet with anticoagulant is much higher. And the benefit you receive in terms of reducing mace risk, but aspirin is on top of rivaroxaban, is not going to be much. So I would just feel comfortable doing rivaroxaban, knowing that rivaroxaban itself also has been shown to reduce risk of mace in uh, previous trials, post-MI even. So I think just rivaroxaban would be my choice.
0: Yeah. And this is a, a shout out to the Spark tool creators. If you could add on the uh, rivaroxaban weird dosage on there, that would uh, that would be interesting because we already have a ton of things on here. So, the spark, you haven't used a spark tool. It's uh sparctool.com. Yeah, one of my favorite things to show residents. It's been
1: over a hundred episodes since we talked about that, Stuart. So, you could remind people about it. (laughs) The, the spark tool is a, you can plug in the Chad's score, Chad's two score, the Chad's Vasc score, and then you can select what, what antiplatelet and antithrombotic agents you're considering and the patient's age and everything. And you can show them in visual form in a graph representation, their bleeding risk and their, uh, and their stroke risk. And it has, yeah, basically has the has bled built in along with, with, um, you know, how much it'll benefit them, so it's it's a nice it's a nice tool, right? Well, uh, okay. So Ambrish, I, I just want to make sure I'm understanding. So you're saying that if someone has an epithelialized stent, then that person, uh, we put them on uh, an oral anticoagulant. We can we can be confident. And is this a class effect? Would you say any of the DOACS? would would be okay as monotherapy for someone yeah.
3: and even if it's in the recent past like if someone had an acs had a PCI, i don't know if you have a case on that yeah had a, you have a case on that yeah so we, we were going to
1: step up the case we were going to say so what like let's say that this let's say that this patient actually it was three months ago and they're still on dual antiplatelet and now they have this afib with rvr and we want to start them on rivaroxaban what how would you handle it there
3: so, so this has been actually lucky for me. This has been studied in a couple of trials. Okay. So there is a trial trial called Pioneer AFPCI, which was basically a setting of post PCI AFIB. Sorry what now. <laughs> Pioneer, <laughs> a- Pioneer AFPCI. Basically, this was a trial Finding looking at AFPCI. Pioneer is and P- I think you'll find it. It's uh, it was published. P-
0: oh in- yeah, Pioneer AFPCI. Yeah. Huh.
3: And then there was a Redual Why, millennials
0: PCI love that, that team.
3: was done. Uh, Redual PCI was, they both used different Novax. Pioneer used Riva, uh, I should say, yeah, Riva. And uh, Redual used dabigatrin. So, but the context was uh, the same. I think they both had a post-PCI, patients with if needing triple therapy versus double therapy, what do you do? The overall consensus, I would cut to the chase and say that if you have a patient who requires DAPT for whatever indication and needs uh, anticoagulation for a fib, drop the aspirin. Do Plavix plus uh, the DOAC for the 12 months that you need them to be on, and then you can uh, uh, either just continue the DOVAC or you can just uh, continue. Yeah, you just continue the DOVAC pretty much.
1: Okay, so so just to make sure I'm understanding, patient has an MI, uh, they're on dual antiplatelet therapy for three months. Then they develop AFib with RVR. And now we're going to start them on rivaroxaban. We would drop the aspirin and keep them on clopidogrel. And then at 12 months, we say, okay, this drug-eluting stent's epithelialized. I can drop the clopidogrel at that point and just keep them on the rivaroxaban.
3: Yeah, unless you're losing the DAP score and then you want to do it for 30 months. This okay. is
0: just getting really,
3: really, really confusing. My yeah, head that, just that, That's why we get paid for cons- consoles. <laughs> Yeah,
1: I think, I think I got it, though. I don't know. Paul, are you tracking? like?
3: Yeah, no, I feel good. Okay, I don't think I need a cardiologist. I would say as you move ahead, as you move farther away from the sentinel or the index event, prioritize bleeding more than ACS because the risk of ACS is all upfront after an event, or the risk of repeat event or a thrombosis of the stent is all upfront. But the risk of bleeding is consistent. Mm-hmm. So as you go far and far out of the index event that led to the stenting, you would you always uh, play the uh, scenario again and again. But you always prioritize, I, get, I think, bleeding a lot more than the risk of ACS. That's that's how I do it in my mind when I'm thinking. Of like someone is five years out of a stent, uh, then I am more likely to uh, I am more likely to drop the aspirin, just continue DOVAC, and if someone is three months out, then I would do DOVAC plus uh, plus clopidogrel or DOVAC plus uh, ticagelor, whatever is the regimen. But I would remind uh, the audience that if you're using rivaroxaban with Plavix uh, less than 12 months after PCI, the rivaroxaban dose is 15 and not 20.
1: Did, does this recommendation for anticoagulation would it be the same if we had someone on therapeutic doses of warfarin?
3: Yeah, you can replace the DOAC with the uh, warfarin, and because the, the, it, it was studied in the past, I think either VOST or VARSIF, one of those trials. Paul, you wanna? Yeah. I-
2: we can move on to the next case, which I feel like is just actually an underhand pitch at this point, but I, I we'll, still, we'll, we'll go through it just for form's sake. Ruth, oh, who's gosh. well, so we'll call her rambunctious as well, but she's a community-dwelling 82-year-old female. She's also yeah. diabetic, but well-controlled on metformin monotherapy, former history of smoking about 40 pack years, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and atorvastatin 20, um, just in your office for probable blood pressure, so all the risk factors. She's been taking a baby aspirin for more than 30 years, has never had a, a major adverse cardiac event. Um, should we consider stopping the aspirin at this point, which he is only one for primary prevention?
3: Yeah, for sure. There I we would go. have stopped
2: it. <laughs> years ago. Done. Slam dunk.
1: You know, I I feel like it seems obvious uh, obvious now. Right, right. I I think there's probably thousands of uh, office visits every day where this scenario comes up, and
3: I, I was yeah I was reading a statistic somewhere from NHANES, and they said the use of aspirin is incredibly high for primary prevention in the general population based on enhanced surveys. Like 40% of the adults between certain age range are actually on aspirin. It's it's shocking that that many people are on it for primary prevention. Yeah.
1: Um, Amrish, I just... So I I think, you know, we talked about it earlier on the show. It's just this incredible... Uh, public perception of aspirin and this negative public perception of the statin and this nocebo effect that you talked about that it's just striking. And I, you know, we got to do what we can to try to reverse it. It's like it kind of an uphill battle for people in primary care to convince patients about this, but uh, we do our best.
2: Yeah. Well, Unless I, think, I put on the patients too. I mean, there's a great amount yeah. of clinical inertia where you have patients yeah. on clopidogrel oh, yeah. in perpetuity and it, I sound smug, but this episode is from talking to you smart people, I need to go now and revise my patient panel and make sure I'm not inappropriately, primarily preventing the things in patients who probably don't need it.
3: Yeah, and I think I would again emphasize this, I said this earlier in the show as well, if you're seeing a patient in your clinic for primary prevention, and whatever the scenario is, you're concerned about risk of major adverse cardiovascular event, and you want to prevent any heart attack or stroke from happening in that patient, and you're thinking about using aspirin, use statin instead. I think mm-hmm. that works better and there's enough evidence and it's safer and there's side effects are all blown out of proportion.
0: I think you just said that, that we were barking up the wrong tree.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I think he just gave us his take home point without really, yeah. Having to prompt him. I think that's the great take home point of the, of this episode. Do you think, is this going to change your practice overall? Like, what Yeah. Do you think? I mean, it's, it, it seems pretty straightforward now that you should be, That you should be pulling, like, deprescribing aspirin in a lot of patients.
2: Yeah, Yeah, 100% agree. This has been another episode of The Curb Ciders. Sure has. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. I did not like that one at all. (laughs) Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
0: I feel like this is getting shorter and shorter every time. All right, whatever. A special thanks is going out to Justin Lee Burke and Beth Garbs Garbitelli for their help on this wonderful episode. It's been, this is going to be a great episode, guys. And otherwise to our entire social media team, which includes Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbitelli once again, on Instagram and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham.
1: I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado,
2: and I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And goodbye.
0: Oh, good night. Good night, <laughs> Paul. Why is that funny?